coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Charlie. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm Tyler, and with me today in studio to help ask some mailbag questions is my coach, Charlie. And Charlie, I, I know it's been, uh, what, two weeks since you've been back with us? Something like that. Something like that, but uh, are you still enjoying your breather from the grind that is the college football season? Yes, I am. Are you really? You're not missing it at all? I mean, kind of. It'll happen. It It'll happen. Very long. It'll be a random Saturday. I know it's only been a couple of weeks, but it'll be a random Saturday in a couple of weeks where you're like, "Oh my God, I have nothing to do. Where's college football?" It's already happened for me. It'll happen for you at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I I know that you do love your Georgia tennis, and as do I, as do I. And you got out there to the Lindsey Hopkins indoor courts to watch the defending indoor national champion women's tennis team to open the season uh, with wins over Michigan State. Was it Notre Dame yesterday? Right, yes. Notre Dame. So uh, And so we did qualify for this year's indoor national title so we can defend that title. Do you think the ladies have what it takes to repeat this year? Uh, I think they do. I think they do. We have some really good freshmen. Yeah, Leah Ma, who's what, 6'7", I think she is. <laughs> no, no, she was, she's tall for your she's average female your tennis height. player. Yeah, she's yeah, no, tall. she's literally as tall as I am. She's playing court two already as a, as a true freshman, which is very, very impressive. Uh, overtaking senior Marta Gonzalez, who played court two really all of last year. So to see her there was awesome. We've got a brand, like literally like what, like here less than a month from Poland. Anya, spell like we would spell Anna here in the States, but Anya Hurtle, we're going to say is how you pronounce that. She is um, a really good doubles player. She's a great serve. She's playing court four fourth. I think she got here at the very beginning of this, uh, this spring semester. So looks pretty promising, although we did lose two. Probably your favorite player off last year's team. Lordis, yeah. Lordis Carlay. I, I know. In that, I liked Vivian too. And yeah, Vivian just disappeared. Wolf. I love Vivian. Yeah, that's the thing about tennis is that there's not. I don't know. Everyone's thinking why they're talking Georgia tennis, but there's just not that much coverage. Uh, so you don't like hear about these things, and you show up for the first match this season. You're like, oh wait, where's Vivian? Where's Lordis? They were like two key contributors last year. You know, they're just they decided to go pro, and they're not here. That's why we replaced them with some really talented players. So fun to get that started. Fun to watch that happen, and we'll see how the ladies and the men. The men had a good weekend. Didn't quite qualify. Uh, had a big upset win on the road at Mississippi State, and then uh, fell just short a three-four match against South Carolina. But I think they're going to be much better this season, as we saw this opening ITA kickoff weekend. But uh, anyway, enough tennis. I know it's probably boring everyone to death already. But we look, we look, we've done our best to cover the waves of development surrounding our program over the past month or so. You know, since we closed out the 2019 season with that Sugar Bowl recap episode, we've done like entire episodes on Jake Fromm, uh, the Jamie Newman transfer, the Todd Munkin hire, and then most recently last week, we did an entire episode on the Brock Vandegrift commitment. But we also recognize, while we've tried to cover that stuff as well as we possibly can, there's almost certainly at least a decent chance that we may have missed something here or there, uh, or that we just didn't discuss some specific aspect to all these developments that you guys may have been interested in. And our DMs on social media and our email inbox have been blowing up with questions and thoughts over the past couple of weeks. So with that in mind, along with the February signing day being just over a week away, it's, man, time flies. Uh, as of this time of recording, at least, I don't know what time you're listening to it, but as of right now, we're recording this Monday evening. That means we are a little more than a week away from the February signing day. So we, we figured we'd go ahead and open up the mailbag and give you guys a chance to get your specific questions answered. Before we jump in, I do want to quickly thank everyone again who has so generously heeded the call to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You guys have really, really answered the call, and we are so, so grateful for that. And really just for all the support you guys have given us over well, that's five or six years, how many years it's been now. And we've said it a million times, but I don't think you would ever really say it enough. This podcast definitely would not still be around if it wasn't for all of you guys out there, all of you loyal listeners, and all the support you've given us over these years. Um, just facts, just facts there. So thank you guys sincerely for that. And uh, we do also have a couple more quick shout-outs to our most recent listeners to not only give us a five-star rating, but to also leave very kind reviews on Apple Podcasts. So a big thank you to Georgia Boy 1983 Palmetto Dog, I love this one, Taylor the Dude Dad Guy, and Smith Dogs Zero Zero. We really appreciate that, guys. You are certainly very awesome. But um, all right, let's go ahead and open up this mailbag. Charlie, take it away. All right. 
Obviously, Bulldog Nation is very excited about the Jamie Newman transfer and what this could mean for our offense in 2020. Alexander says, A lot of the sports books have Jamie Newman as a top Heisman candidate next season. With the new offensive scheme and a new group of playmakers, how likely do you think it is that Jamie Newman is a Heisman finalist? Heisman finalist. That just doesn't like Heisman finalist, Heisman anything in Georgia football offensively just doesn't seem like it goes together, at least in the past couple of years. And honestly, like, I, and I'm not trying to be funny here. Like, I just kind of like stopped even hoping that we were ever going to have a Heisman finalist. Like, even guys like as great as guys like Todd Gurley and Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle and DeAndre Swift, as great as those guys were, like, they were never going to win the Heisman the way our offense was structured or Kirby Smart and even the later years of Mark Great because we just didn't really feature any one of those guys. With the running backs, those guys are so, so good. I mean, Nick, Nick Chubb, ascent, I mean, should have led the NFL in rushing if his coaches would have used him right this year. But um, these are these are incredible athletes and incredible players, but... Just with the way we like to share things in the backfield and the fact that we just don't throw the football much at all. We're going to have a quarterback. We weren't going to have a receiver. And again, we're sharing the load at the running back position. We weren't going to have a running back there. Just It wasn't going to happen. But but now with Todd Munkin at the helm, I, I think there's, that certainly at least opens the door for the possibility that we could potentially... I'm not saying going to have a guy that's going to win the Heisman Trophy, but at least have somebody who's in the conversation, which we haven't really had. I mean, Jake Fromm in 2018, towards the end of that year, was like in the... I guess he was like in the periphery of the conversation, but not really. He was never really a contender. But I think like that door is certainly open. I think it's possible. Because um, And the reason I'm not going to completely discount this question, and the reason I say it's possible, is because if you look at Todd Munkin's background, wherever he has gone... look. Let, let's be real. This... Heisman Trophy Award has become a quarterback award, right, Charlie? Like, it's it's yes. the best quarterback that puts up the best numbers on a, at least a good enough team, right? Yes. You might have a running back here and there who's, like, in the conversation. They put up insane numbers. But even, like, Chuba Hubbard at Oklahoma State put up insane numbers this year. Jonathan Taylor put up insane numbers, and, and they're not there uh, at the Heisman Trophy ceremony. So... Uh, I mean, Jonathan Taylor put up numbers forever, right? How many how many seasons that guy go for over two thousand yards and doesn't really get an invite there? Uh, so uh, it's really a quarterback award. That's that's really what it is. Uh, but when you look at Todd Munkin, if it is a quarterback award, wherever he's gone at the college level, his quarterbacks have put up huge numbers. And even if you put say the NFL level as well, but if you look at two thousand eleven, he was the offense coordinator there with Brandon Whedon, who, who he helps develop into a first round draft pick. Brandon Whedon threw for. 40, over 4,700 yards, 37 touchdowns, 8.6 yards per attempt in 2011. Fast forward to 2015, he, t- he takes over as the head coach. He parlays that Oklahoma State job into the head coaching job at Southern Miss. Takes over an 0-12 Southern Miss program. Within three years, has them at nine wins. And in that final year, where he really turned things around, Nick Mullins, his quarterback, threw for 4,400 yards, 38 touchdowns, 8.6 yards per attempt again. So he's pushing the ball down the field. And you look at the NFL Let's just say 2018, for example, where he was coached, where he was the offense coordinator and play caller for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You had a Ryan Fitzpatrick, who is the like the journeyman of all journeymen in the history of the NFL. I think he's played at this point. I think he's played for every NFL team. Uh, I think it has to be true, right? And then Jameis Winston, who's I mean, Jameis Winston, Jameis Winston, probably not going to have his job after this year. There's a good chance he might not. But those two quarterbacks combined for. 5,358 yards passing for the Tampa Bay Bucks in 2018, which was 200 more yards passing than Ben Roethlisberger had himself. And the reason I use Roethlisberger there is he led the league in passing yards in 2018. If you combine the two starting quarterbacks that split time for the Bucks there under Todd Munkin, they threw for more yards than Roethlisberger did. So his quarterbacks have put up massive numbers. So if you look at a guy like Jamie Newman, whose skill set seems to fit what uh, what uh, Todd Munkin has done in his career with quarterbacks pushing the ball vertically down the field and as as accurate of a deep ball passer and as beautiful a deep ball passer really as we've seen from from Jamie Newman also his ability with the strong arm to fit balls into tight windows I th- certainly think there's a, a, a sh- I don't want to say strong possibility but again I, I wouldn't close the door right now and say just you know, out, of, out of hand just let me just discount that completely and say there's no chance whatsoever I don't like to speak in any kind of absolutes and, and but I think there's a chance. And Newman was highly productive last season at Wake Forest with inferior talent around him. When you got guys like George Pickens, you got that kind of receiver. You got some of the tight ends we're bringing in, like Darnell Washington, a five-star prospect. You got Trey McKitty coming in from Florida State, who I think is a guy that can certainly contribute for us. Demetrius Robertson with his vertical speaking all of a sudden become more of a threat for us. Uh, let's see if we can get Diamond Blaylock back healthy. Uh, there are some options that we have at the wide receiver position and it tied in along with our running backs as well, that I think we can certainly surround Newman with the kind of 
skill talent that will allow him to put up some massive numbers. Like at least have him in the Heisman conversation. I think. And the uh, Alexander, the uh, I think what he threw out the stat he threw out on Twitter, if I remember correctly, I think Newman right now has the third highest odds, tied for third highest odds. I think it's fourteen to one, maybe. To uh, win the Heisman, tro- or it's either to win the Heisman Trophy or to get an invite to New York, one of the two. So I- I'm not going to predict that Newman's going to win. I'm not certainly not ready to say that, but I-, I could see him in New York. I think there's a possibility there if our team has the kind of success that we all hope that we have, and if our offense takes the kind of step under Todd Munkin that we all hope it does. And Newman's skill set is kind of featured the way that I, I think Todd Munkin's going to certainly try to. So, yeah, I think it's it's possible. Um, again, not going to say he's going to do it, but I certainly think there's – I wouldn't – like, at the end of the season, if we say, okay, Jamie Newman's in New York for the Heisman Trophy ceremony, I wouldn't be sh- totally shocked by that, which before – if we still had the same offensive scheme we had coming back from the last couple of years, I would say I'd be shocked if anyone would be in that conversation. But, no, not so much this year. Okay. Well, the other big topic of conversation has been the addition of Todd Munkin as our new offensive coordinator. And so Stephen asks, on a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you that our offense will actually look and operate differently next season? And if you think things will be different, what exactly do you think we will see? Thank you for this question, Stephen. I love to play this game, the scale of 1 to 10. I I always try to get Curtis to do this, but he never really wants to play along with me because I, I, whatever. But um, I appreciate the question. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how confident am I that our offense will actually look and operate differently next season? You know what? Call me crazy. I'm going to go a 10. I'm going to 10, baby. I'm going 10 on this one. Uh, I think Kirby learned his lesson. Like I am convinced that our offense will look significantly different next year. In, in, in terms of like personnel usage, the way we operate, the things that we do. It, and, and you also have to throw Jamie Newman in there. You have a mobile quarterback, a dual threat quarterback. That by itself right there should make things look different if we just actually use the guy's skill sets, which I think Munkin, if you look at where he's been throughout his career, he's kind of adapted to whatever quarterback and whatever skill set or skills players that he has on hand. And I think that we're going to see that again this year. So look, I think Kirby learned his lesson. That's the big thing for me. To me, there's no way that Kirby Smart would have moved on from James Coley if he was not ready to take a step back, take his hands off the offense completely, and let someone else do their thing. And to kind of just stop the micromanaging the offense. Now, I don't know the, the true degree that Kirby micromanaged things offensively, but there was there's at least some degree of micromanagement there. And I think it's time for him just to turn the offense over to somebody else and let them do their thing and him kind of just kind of oversee that and kind of just be around and then uh, focus on doing his thing on defense there. But here's also what I would say. Kirby does not care what the armchair quarterbacks say. And I include myself in that. He does not care what I say on this podcast. If I criticize him or anyone out there on a message board or, or on the radio or on TV criticizes him, Kirby really just doesn't care. That's not what uh, that's not what he makes decisions based off. People were thinking about this. I mean, people were moaning about his promotion of Coley last year, but he didn't care because he thought it was in our best interest for the cohesiveness there to go ahead and bring and, and promote James Coley from within. Now we can all look back at that and say, and I think he would admit too right now, obviously by by demoting Coley that that was a mistake. But he made that decision based on what him his thought that that was what's best for our program at that time. But I think he's learned his lesson after seeing what LSU was able to do in one year and how our offense essentially held us back from being in the college football playoffs. So we had a defense that was more than capable of being there. I think our defense was the best defense in uh, out of all those teams that were in the college football playoffs. But our offense just was not even close. And so I think he learned his lesson. He learned it the hard way, uh, but I think he learned it there. And Kirby, he's motivated by winning. He doesn't make decisions based off, like I said, doesn't make decisions based off what people say, what the narrative is out there. So to me, like demoting Coley was not a move made to satisfy the, the vocally dissatisfied fan. That's not what it was about. It was made because he believes it's what's now, he now believes that's what's going to help us win. And he is ready to essentially fire one of his best buddies. Him and Coley are very tight, guys. Uh, maybe not him and Mike Bobo type, but they're very close friends. And he essentially fired me, demoted him. But let's be real. I mean, that was a nice way of saying, like, I just don't, really don't know if we want you in that role. Uh, actually, that's exactly what he said. So, look, and when that happens, when he does that to one of his best friends, he sure as heck is not going to replace him with a guy he, he is going to demand to do the exact same thing Coley was doing. That makes no sense at all. So that right there is factor number one and me thinking, yeah, Kirby's ready to kind of just take his hands off this baby and just let it evolve, let it change, and let us come into the 21st century offensively. Uh, and and I, in terms of uh, what I think our offense is going to look like and what I think will be different specifically, uh, I do plan on, like, I really want to do an entire show on this, kind of break that down. I'm, I'm in the process right now, actively watching tape, trying to find as much as I can 
of the teams. Going back to 2011 from uh, when Tom Munkin was calling plays, crunching stats, all that kind of stuff. So I'm working on that right now. I'll try to get that ready for you guys here in the coming weeks. Uh, but just give you kind of a little taste of that, a little preview of what I've kind of discovered so far, what I've kind of uh, where my mind is on that. I think the big thing that you're going to see is that you're going to, number one, you're going to see us attack space. Uh, you're going to see us use all parts of the field to create space. Uh, and, th- that, and that's what the, that's the air raid philosophy. I, I, Tom Mungin is not a true necessarily air raid guy, 100%. He does what he needs to do to win with a, with a personnel on hand. But there are, certainly are quite a few air raid principles in what I've seen him do to this point. And the biggest principle he uses from the air raid is, is just the space factor. Uh, use all parts of the field. Use all the grass out there available to you. Create space, and then you strategically attack it. And I think he's going to do that in a way that we have not really done before under Kirby Smart. Uh, I think we're going to use the tight end, but we're also not going to be afraid to go tight end less at times. So you're going to see some different personnel groupings. Uh, if we have multiple good, multiple running backs that he thinks are capable of helping us win, then you, I think you're going to see multiple running backs on the field at the same time. I can see plenty of scenarios where you're going to see uh, like maybe a Zamir White or Kenny McIntosh or Kendall Milton and then James Cook on the field at the same time. The versatility that brings you and how you can create favorable matchups against defense, I think that that's like going to be a huge benefit to this offense. It's something that I don't think we did enough of the past couple years. Uh, but that's one thing I think he does a great job of is just finding matchups, creating matchups, scheming matchups to get our guys uh, in favorable situations. And another thing I would say is, guys, look, we are going to throw the ball more than we ever have before. I'm not going to say we're going full area like like Washington State or Mike Leach. I guess what's going to be not Mississippi State under Mike Leach. You're not going to see that. But our, make no mistake, I think our, I'm pretty sure our offense is going to be centered around throwing the football, which is going to be a big change for us. We've been so heavily skewed towards the run. I'm going to give you a couple of numbers here that I've kind of put together, uh, crunching some numbers, trying to get ready to do that show. But uh, we were uh, 55, like we were 60% run on average over the first four years of the Kirby Smart tenure. 60% run on average. I think we topped out at 68% in 2017. Uh, but if you look at Todd Munkin's career as as an offensive play caller at the college level, he's on average throwing the ball 55% of the time. That's going to be so. That's a huge differential there. So we've, we're going to. We're going to go from, I'm not saying this is exactly how the numbers are going to play out, but if you look at Munkin's career averages versus what we've been the last four years, we've been 60% run the last four years on average, whereas Munkin as a college coordinator has been on average 45% run the football. That's a 15% differential. That's a drastic difference there. Uh, So I think what you're going to see is a reversal of the old cliche. You know, the old cliche for years and years, even going back to when I was playing Little League football, man. You use the run to set up the pass. You run the football to set up the pass. And that's certainly been what we've tried to do the past couple of years. We're going to run the football with our elite running backs, our big offensive line, create one-on-one matchups on the outside, and try to hit some vertical shots down the field of the back short throws. That's what we've done. We couldn't really do it last year because we didn't have the receivers to do it other than George Pickens and Lawrence Cager, and he was out for most of the year. And we should have the personnel to do it. Uh, but that's kind of what our offense has been centered around for these last four years. What Munkin does is he, he, he reverses the whole thing. He uses the pass to create explosive plays in the run game. He's not going to completely eschew the run game, but first and foremost, we're going to be a passing offense, and we're going to force teams to have to counter and, and use our personnel or, or use their defensive personnel to counter that. And then we're going to try to run the football over them. That will create uh, matchup advantages and explosive plays in the run game. Then when they have to kind of compensate for that, to try to defend the run. Then we hit the ball vertically down the field. He does a really good job. Uh, of using the pass to create everything. It's all about the pass with Todd Monk. And if you hear him in his press conferences talk about that, he's very clear. He's learned how to win with the pass, and that is what we're going to do. I'd also throw this in there. We mentioned having Jamie Newman as a dual-threat quarterback this year, uh, at least if he wins the job. We don't want to completely say he's going to win the job. I think he's certainly the odds-on favorite right now. But I'm also excited with him to see what kind of influence Matt Luke will have on our offense this year. If you, he's been offense coordinator multiple stops. He was also the head coach at, at um, Ole Miss when they uh, were running the wide wide open spread up tempo offense in this past year with John Rice Plumley and you had Rich Rodriguez there, uh, who was essentially I mean I, I, 
as far as I'm concerned, was the guy who invented the zone read. And he's he's certainly evolved from that. They're doing some really creative things offensively with the quarterback run game. And I'm really excited to see what kind of influence Matt Lewis can have, bringing some of those principles, some of those concepts over to our offense, implementing that with Jamie Newman. Uh, you know, it's, you, just the quarterback run game in general, the quarterback power, the counters, the different RPOs that we can attach to the quarterback run game. I'm really excited to see what he's going to bring to the table in terms of our offensive scheme as well. Because I think it's going to be, it's going to be obviously Todd Mung is going to be the guy calling the plays, but it's going to be a team effort. All the guys are going to bring something to the table. I think Matt Luce is certainly going to have a lot to offer from a schematic standpoint. And before we move on to our next question, I do want to remind you guys that today's show is sponsored by The Athletic, a subscription-based sports news site for real fans. With in-depth coverage from local writers on, on every team, you know, as proud members of the Bulldog Nation, we are all very familiar with the very talented Seth Emerson, and he is the beat writer for George, all things Georgia sports at The Athletic. But it's not just the great local coverage. You also have great national writers like Jay Glazer, Mike Sando on the college football side. You've got Andy Staples. You've got Bruce Feldman. And you've also got Stuart Mandel. you got three of the best college football writers out there. And The Athletic has you covered on all fronts. There's no ads, pop-ups, clickbait, nothing like that. It's just great sports writing that tells the story behind the story. You get great exclusive player profiles, deep dives on analytics, team power rankings, fantasy sports, and of course the best coverage of all the developing news stories out there. One of the stories I'm reading right now on The Athletic, actually I just finished it up, was uh, obviously the the hot topic right now is Kobe Bryant and, and the horrible tragedy that happened in Calabasas. There's a great article up by Mike Lombardi where he just kind of goes through the the competitive nature that Kobe Bryant brought to the game. That's one thing that I always respected about Kobe is just his drive to be the best, very Michael Jordan-esque. And it's a great article, so I, I would strongly encourage you guys to get on Athletic and check that out. And right now, if you are ready to get started, you can go to theathletic.com slash overtime for 40% off a yearly subscription. That's theathletic.com slash overtime. Okay. Next up, we have a question that looks at the new offense from a defensive perspective. Live Breed Dogs asks, how much does it benefit our defense to practice against the potential, quote-unquote, new offense that UGA will have? It certainly doesn't hurt. I think it helps. I do think, you know, it's one of the things that they always, you know, when you talk about teams potentially going to the triple option, how it's so hard for defenses to actually get prepared to face the kind of offense they're actually going to face in real games because, when they're practicing, like in spring practice or in scrimmages, the offense they're going against is a triple option offense. So you're not really getting the kind of looks against against the kind of offenses you're going to face throughout the year. So if you think about where college football offensively, where it has gone the past decade, it's certainly skewed more towards the spread. Uh, I don't want to say there are no pro style offenses, but even the, the pro style offenses we that are still out there are starting to incorporate more spread principles whether it's fly sweeps, uh, personnel groupings, all sorts of different things, RPOs, they're all trying to use that kind of stuff. So if those, if that's the vast majority of the kind of offense you're going to face throughout the year, it's much better for you to face a version of that in practice on a day-in and day-out basis because you're just going to see more of the principles that you're going to have to defend when it comes to actual game settings. So I do think that's going to be a benefit to our defense. I don't know if it's going to make the make a you know a difference between us getting the playoffs or not because I think our defense is already really, really good. But it certainly cannot hurt, and uh, I do think it will help us be a little bit more prepared potentially for the kind of offenses we're going to have to face if the offense we go against in practice every day is more like those offenses. Okay. It's not even February, and the Florida hype train is. Oh my God! Don't get me started on this. This oh, every year it was the same way last year. So it's it's gonna be the same way into, for infinity. That's yeah. just gonna happen. Sorry. So it's, the Florida yeah. hype train is already in full effect. So Drill Dog asks, as usual, everyone is picking Florida to come out of the yep. East yep. next season. What's your opinion on if the gap is closing <laughs> or not? Oh my God! This this crap. I love it. I love it. It's fine. Actually, I want everyone in America. I want every national pundit, everyone out there who has an opinion. I want them all to pick Florida the offseason. That's what I want. I would love nothing more than that. Is it annoying? Sure, because they have no idea what they're talking about. At least in my opinion. Maybe I'll end up being the one who's wrong. But uh, I would love that. Just the motivation factor. I want everyone to build Florida up. I want to. I want. When SEC Media Day hits this summer, I want us to be uh, number two, or even number three. Hey, number three, four is fine with me, too. Throw Tennessee up there while you're at. You're hearing some Tennessee hype as well, at least from their fan base. But I want everyone to pick Florida. I want them to be the favorite in the East. I want that so badly. Uh, but are they are they closing the gap? I mean, and I know in some of this, 
this conversation is coming from a couple of transfers that they've gotten recently, a couple of five-star transfers. Ooh, uh, Lorenzo Lingard, running back from Miami, was a former five-star running back. I think he was number two running back in the country a couple years back, 2018, I want to say. Uh, and then Justin Shorter from Penn State. He was the number one receiver, top 10 prospect, now actually according to the 247 composite a couple years back. So they got these two five-star transfers. But the thing is, these guys haven't played like five stars yet in their career. So sure, you have some dude rating them five stars, but they certainly haven't played that way. So maybe these guys just potentially, who knows, possibly, were just a little overrated. They're not really five-star players. You at Lingard, as a freshman, he ran for 136 total yards at Miami. And then he got hurt and didn't play the rest of the year. And then he basically didn't play at all for the, he did not just he basically didn't get any carries at all for Miami this year. And maybe that was a discipline thing. I don't know. Because but if it wasn't a discipline thing, like I think that's even worse for for Florida fans because Charlie, I don't know if you watched much Miami football this year. They were as bad as we were offensively, they were ten times worse. They were flat out abysmal offensively. They could not run the football, they couldn't do anything. So if he could not get a carry last year. With that Miami offense, as putrid as they were, as many injuries, DJ, DJ Dallas was their, was their starter running back to start the year. He goes down with the injury. Uh, I think they might have like one scholarship running back in the bowl game, something like that, or uh, one or two, something like that. So if he's not getting carries in that situation, how on earth are they expecting him to come in and just be their savior running back? I mean, if he was worth anything, you would have think when Miami needed his running backs really badly last year that he would have been an option, but he's still just didn't get any carries. So we'll see there. Justin Shorter at Penn State has 15 catches in two seasons. 15 catches in two seasons. Sure, former five-star, great, awesome. But are you really a five-star? 15 catches, two years? I don't know. I don't know. The numbers would say no, but may, who knows? Maybe he comes in to, to Gainesville next year and he just sets the world on fire. But the evidence to this point certainly does not suggest that is going to be the case. And I'm not sure... Even if the, both those guys turn out to be superstars, I'm not sure either one's going to be eligible this season. They're not grad transfers. Now, I'm sure they're going to try to get a waiver. The NCAA has basically just gone to like free-for-all, wild, wild west when it comes to transfers. So I'm sure they'll find a way to get uh, their eligibility. But, I mean, there's no reason, really, honestly. They just weren't being productive at their former stops, and now they want to transfer somewhere else. Then you got Britton Cox, who's a... Uh, a five-star transfer, obviously from from Georgia, from us. Uh, but I think he's, a, I mean, he's a solid player. I don't think he's a five-star prospect. And then you got Javon Dexter coming in uh, in this class, number seventeen prospect nationally, who in their final ratings did finally get bumped up to a five-star uh, very recently here. So now in so based on my calculations, that's four five stars on their entire roster. Four, four. Charlie, uh, don't look at my notes here. If you want to take a guess at how many five-star prospects we have committed in just the current two thousand twenty recruiting class. Eight, at least. It's a little high. Uh, five. 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 got five currently committed. Now, we could get more. It could be six, seven. Who knows? Zach Evans is still certainly a possibility. Right now, currently committed, we have five five-star prospects, which I suck at math. You guys, if you listen to the show, you know that. But, Charlie, I think five is greater than four, right? Yes, this. Five is greater than four. Okay. So, five is greater than four, and that's four in their entire roster. That's five for us in one class. Um, no, no, the gap is, the gap is not closing. Because so we have five, five stars right now in this class to go along with the 10 that we already have on the roster, uh, that are still on the roster after defections and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so nope, gap's not closing. If you look at the average recruiting ranking finish over the past four cycles, which is the reason I use four cycles, that's the guys that are currently on the roster. We have finished on average over the last four recruiting cycles at 2.25 in the final team rankings on 247. Uh, and then Florida, on the other hand, hasn't been bad, but just not our level. They finished on average 10.5 in the last four cycles. Solid, but no, they're not closing the gap. Uh, let's look. Let's take it a step further. Let's look at the number of four and five star prospects on each roster. Uh, over the last four cycles, we have recruited a grand total of, or we have landed a grand total of 80 four and five star prospects. While Florida, on the other hand, oh, uh, you guess you guys are sensing the trend here. Only 57 four and five star prospects over the last four cycles. So no. In terms of pure talent, definitively, they are not closing the gap. Now, that doesn't mean they aren't good. They are a good football team. I, I, I respect them in that regard. They have some talented players. They're not scrubs over there in Gain, down there in Gainesville. But the notion that they have closed the talent gap is just patently absurd. I find it comical. I, when I hear these things, I just I, I laugh, man. I love it. I love it. I'm eating this stuff up. I want to hear it all offseason. Um, and, and like they're just not going to close the, the gap, at least in terms of talent. I'm not saying they're not going to get some good players, but 
them closing the gap t- from a talent perspective, it just ain't happening. It's not going to happen because Kirby Smart is who he is, who he is, and Dan Mullen is who he is. Dan Mullen's not a recruiter, man. He doesn't have a recruiting staff. Kirby Smart, he's he's the best recruiter in America, in my opinion. You can call me a homer if you want, but I mean the numbers speak for themselves. I think he's the best recruiter in America, certainly as a head coach. And look, I'm not saying that. Florida can never beat us, and that Dan Mullen will never, ever, ever beat us. I don't like, you know, I don't like speaking absolutes, but I also say this in terms of the gap because people like to, you know, they they can't argue the recruiting perspective because Kirby just destroys Mullen. So they always go, well, well Mullen's a better coach. Mullen's a better coach. Okay, is he? Is he? And I know he was at Mississippi State, so that I don't have as as talented players. I get that, but the fact remains that no team that Kirby Smart has ever been a part of as either a defensive coordinator at Alabama or a head coach here at Georgia has ever one time. They've never lost to a team that Dan Mullen was the head coach of. Never. Not once. Zero. Zero. So, uh, no, I don't think they're closing the gap. It's all about players. If you're talking about closing the gap. It's about players at the college level more than anything else. It's not just players, but it's more. It's about players more than anything else. To me, there's three aspects of building a program and winning at the highest level. It's acquisition. you got to acquire the players. Development. you got to develop them. And deployment. you got to use them the right way. We've acquired the best talent in the country. We have. There's no doubt about it. Oh, I think we do a really good job developing players. The deployment, especially offensively, is where we've fallen short. Hopefully we fix that when it comes to um, hiring Todd Monk and bringing him on board. But it's if you look at the, those three things I just mentioned, there, acquisition, development, deployment, they're all important, but I, I think acquisition is is weighted far more heavily than the other two. I think that is the key. you got to have players. If you don't have players, it doesn't matter how much you develop them or how you deploy them. You're not going to win national title. you got to have elite players. And I just don't think Florida is ever going to have a roster that's more talented than us. It doesn't mean they can't mess up and beat us once every now and then. We play a really bad game, injuries, something like that. I'm not saying that can never happen, but they're not going to be the more talented team, though. So in terms of closing the gap in that regard, no way. Don't see it. Last week, the news broke that James Coley was taking a job at Texas A&M in a move that did not surprise anyone. And on that topic, Carl says, he doesn't think anyone will miss his play calling, but how much will it hurt our recruiting to lose James Coley to Texas A&M? This is a fair question. Uh, and I just I just talked about how important recruiting is. So I think this is a very fair question. You've got to have guys on your staff that can recruit. Uh, and Coley has always been a very good recruiter. I'm not going to dismiss him at all. He's, he's a very good recruiter. He has been for a long time. But I, I do think it's also fair to say at the same time that Coley took it to another level as a recruiter when he got this when he got the job here in Athens at, at the University of Georgia because not only was he a good recruiter himself and just a personal kind of guy, but he also had our brand behind him and he also had you can't discount this either Kirby Smart closing deals the best in the business closing the deal. But he did a lot of legwork. A really good recruiter for for us. He did a great job. I mean, really, his value, his biggest value, was his connections in Florida. From his time coaching in Miami, Florida State, got a lot of connections down there, and helped us get get our foot in the door with a bunch of guys like Tyreek Stevenson, Devon Wilson, you know, uh, Tyson Campbell, Amir Speed. I know he hasn't played much, but still the relationship there. Ryan Davis, a, a linebacker. Uh, Carson Beck, even uh, Dalvin, or not Dalvin, <laughs> James Cook, obviously. So a lot of those guys, I mean, he's the guy that got the ball rolling for us there and got us the initial in. And then, of course, we have other guys on staff that helped close the deal, and Kirby himself helped close the deal. But uh, Coley certainly, play, certainly played a big role when it came to our, our recruiting. But again, I, I I think it's Coley's a good recruiter, but our brand in many ways sells itself. And you and Kirby puts such an emphasis on recruiting. I'm never going to worry about recruiting under Kirby Smart. Whoever he brings in here to replace Coley, I have full faith that he's going to be able to do the job. Uh, I'm not going to say he's going to be as good of a recruiter as Coley, but I certainly, certainly don't think there's going to be that much, any kind of drop-off at all. I don't see our recruiting machine skipping a beat much, if anything at all, honestly. And I know that's, it sounds like I'm just being a homer here, but I, I, I just look at how we recruit. One guy is not going, and I know we lose Sam Pittman too, but Matt Luke's doing a really good job right now building relationships. I think he's going to do a really good job. Uh, and and the Sam Pittman is another good example. Sam Pittman was always a, a good, solid recruiter, but he wasn't getting five-star after five-star after five-star in Arkansas or Tennessee, wherever he was prior to this. He come to Georgia with our brand and with Kirby Smart there to help close the deal. All of a sudden now he becomes, he, he grows into what is considered one of the, the best recruiters in all of America at any position. So I, I think those guys are good recruiters. They have good personalities. All those things, they're genuine. All those things are true. But our brand certainly amplifies any ability that you might have as a recruiter. So I think that helps. you got Kirby, helps develop his coaches as well. Um, he, and Kirby is our alpha recruiter. He is the guy. And he ain't going anywhere. So if he's the alpha, he's there. He develops his coaches as recruiters. I, I don't really think we're going to miss much of a, uh, or skip much of a beat there when it comes to recruiting. At least I hope not. 
All right, we're going to stick with the recruiting theme here. Adam asks, with signing day just around the corner, are there any new under-the-radar names that we should keep an eye on that may end up being diamonds in the rough? Yeah, there's a there's a couple of guys that uh, I mentioned last week that I think you still need to pay attention to. Lad McConkey is a guy that I mentioned at a North Murray High School. I'm really high on I and I know he's going to go on a visit to Tennessee this weekend, and I think he grew up a Tennessee fan from my understanding. And if they, they haven't offered yet... As far as I know, but um, there's a good chance they offer him this weekend. If they do, that does concern me a little bit. But he's a a pro table slot receiver, a great athlete. I think Tom Munkin can really, really do some some dangerous things, some creative things with him. And he gives us something in that slot that I don't think we really have. We have some guys that like from a physical profile, from size, kind of fit the the slot receiver position. But I don't know if they have the skill set to be as dynamic as a guy like McConkey has. So I'm really, really high on him. He's a great athlete, uh, explosive in the short area, can create that natural separation. And I, I would love to get him. So he's a guy going to watch out for if you missed the show last week. Another guy whose name's kind of catching some steam here is uh, uh, he played a little running back, played, but he's, he's recruited as a linebacker. He's going to play linebacker at the next level. Uh, from Irwin County, and his name's DJ Lundy. He's a, a downhill thumping type linebacker, an old school throwback downhill thumper at an inside linebacker. And those guys, and I have a soft spot for those guys. That's kind of what I was growing up, and it's what I used to coach. So I love those kind of guys. But the game has changed. Uh, the offensive football has changed over the past 10, 15 years. Lundy, I do not see him as a space backer. Uh, with the proliferation of the spread offenses, you just and you you need that. You need that. These kind of guys, uh, they become kind of dinosaurs. You don't you don't face offense at least in the at least at the college level. You don't face that many pro style offenses. They're going to run the ball right at you. Where downhill thumpers really kind of come into play. Uh, you need guys that can run sideline to sideline and be three down linebackers. And, and I'm not saying that Lundy can't be a good player in the right scheme. I just don't. I don't see him as a three down linebacker right now. And again, in the modern age of spread offenses, that type of linebacker has just been devalued. So I just if if he comes here, I don't know who he's going to play over. I just I don't know. Uh, sure, he'd be nice for debt purposes, I guess. Uh, but I feel fine at inside linebacker right now. I know we don't have an inside, an inside linebacker in this class, but I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. Uh, unless it's a guy like Noah Sewell or, or, or Justin Flo, the, 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 who I think are the two top linebackers in this class, inside linebackers in this class. If it's not one of those guys, I, I think we just don't take an inside linebacker in this year's class. We've taken a bunch in the past two years. We're fine depth-wise there. And that will give us some class separation to allow us to go after some of the big-time guys in next year's class, like a Barrett Carter, who I'm really high on at North Winnett High School. Smell Monin is a top 40 player nationally. Those are the two big targets right now at inside linebacker. So uh, I would like to maybe go without take. Like, let's not reach on a guy. I, I, don't, I, I hate it. I, don't, I know that sounds insulting. I'm not trying to insult it. I think Lundy's a good, solid player. But it's kind of a reach for the University of Georgia right now to take him at inside linebacker when you can get a guy, some elite guys like Barrett Carter, Smell Mana next year if you have a little more class separation. So I think that's probably the route I would go. But but watch his name. I wouldn't be shocked if we take him because we don't have an inside linebacker um, in this class. So it's, it's a possibility. It's just a name to kind of watch out for there. I mentioned him a little bit last week. Another guy, Charles Bell the sixth, who's kind of come on the past week or so. He was here in Athens over the weekend. And uh, he's a really good athlete. He's got some versatility in the secondary. He can play safety. He can play corner a little bit. I probably like him a little bit more at safety, but we're going to lose some guys in the next year or two in the secondary, and uh, we need to reload there. We've already got a couple guys on board right now, but I think Bell would be a good addition. When I saw his name, service went and watched the tape. Honestly, I had not watched the tape before last week, but I think he's a good athlete. He's a guy that I, I would certainly be okay with us taking. I think right now it's going to come down to do we give him the go. I think he probably wants to commit here, but... I think we're uh, kind of seeing how things play out with some, maybe some guys that are a little bit higher on our board. Maybe not necessarily at that position, but just in general on our board, like the best available kind of things. And uh, if you give him the thumbs up, then I think he'll be on our commit list before, uh, or at least by the February signing period. And then Dajan Edwards is a guy. Look, Zach Evans, who knows what's going to happen with Zach Evans? I have no idea. Uh, there's a chance he could be here this week. He was in Tennessee over the weekend. There's a chance he could be here in Athens this weekend. Who knows? Honestly, like... I don't know. I can't predict it. I, that, that's just been the roller coaster of all roller coasters, as we've said for a couple of weeks now. But if we don't end up getting Zach Edwards, or if we don't, if we just, if we choose to end up not taking him, which might be the possibility, which again, don't know how exactly how that's going on. There's so many things flying around with him. But Dejan Edwards is maybe a safer option uh, at running back right now out of Colquitt County. Is a, essentially a top 250 prospect, 247 composite. I think he's number 254, something like that. Now, he is not like the home run threat that Zach Evans is, not as dynamic as Zach Evans, but he's a good, solid back. He's got some fluidity in his game. He can catch the ball in the backfield. Um, he, he runs hard. He's a good kid from everything I understand. So kind of the antithesis of Zach Edwards. I don't I, I don't want to say Zach Evans is a bad kid, but like there's not as much, doesn't seem to be as much baggage 
with him as there does with Zach Evans. So if we decide to go the safer route, that guy, uh, Dejan Edwards, could certainly be a possibility as well. But um, wouldn't discount Zach Evans. So there's a couple names for you. Okay, well, our last few questions are about our struggling basketball Oh, God, team. do we have to do this? Yeah, there was. We have to go there? One and five <laughs> in conference play. Uh, yeah, one and five, yeah, you're right. To say yeah. the least, it's been ugly. So Jerry asks, yeah. why can't our basketball team get over the hump, even with a potential one-and-done number one draft pick on the team? Because we're terrible? Is that oh, sufficient enough? Okay. <laughs> no, no. Uh, That's a good short answer. Yeah. But no, I, I elaborate a little yes, bit? Yes, I'm sure Jerry would like some elaboration here. So let me try, Jerry. Uh, I'm going to try not to go off on too much of a tangent here because I am very upset with how this team is playing because I'm the guy that, beginning, after that big win against Memphis, like, oh, yeah, we got a shot to make the tournament. Uh, we could at least be on the bubble. But, I mean... Maybe if things go like we just have this miraculous turnaround, but uh, it's weird. Like we've regressed from that point. Like we are not playing now. Maybe it's because we're playing higher level competition. The SEC we've got a conference play, all those things. But even so, like I like we're just not playing anywhere near the kind of basketball that we were playing prior to that. Even before that, going into that Memphis game, going into conference play, we're just not like we've regressed. It's, it's hard to explain, but oh. Uh, why can't we get over the hump? There's a couple things that you kind of have to be good at to be a good basketball team. Number one, you got to be able to shoot the basketball, at least from distance in the college, in the, in the modern college basketball game. We just simply cannot shoot the three. Um, we're 81st nationally shooting uh, shooting percentage overall, but we're 309th in three point shooting percentage. We're only shooting 30 percent from the from the three point line. 309th nationally. 13th in the SEC. The only team worse than us is Texas A&M, which might be right now the statistically the only is the only team worse than us in the SEC. But as bad as we are shooting the three, we're actually pretty good from from two point land. We're, we're 29th nationally in two point field goal percentage, 54%. But again, 30%, 309th nationally shooting the three, and that's just not going to get it done. We just we are not shooting the basketball well enough. And, and on top of that, if we can't shoot, we're not scoring like we need to. We also aren't defending we are simply not defending the basketball it's it's just bad to watch man like we're 282nd nationally in opponents points per game almost 75 points a game that's just not going to cut it you're not going to win basketball games going to 75 points a game you're just not uh and we're 242nd nationally in opponent shooting percentage that's just not going to cut it and if you look at the last combine the fact that we can't sh- we're not shooting well right now especially from three and we're not defending look at our this these are our, our shooting splits uh, since conference play started. So against Kentucky to open conference play, we shot 42% from the field. They shot 50%. Against Auburn, or at Auburn, we shot 38%. They shot 53%. Against Tennessee, our only win in conference to date, we shot 47%. They shot 40 Huh. Funny how that happens. You shoot a little better than, than the opponent, and you win a game. Huh. And then at Mississippi State, which is just maybe the worst thing I've seen from a Georgia basketball team in, in a long time, and including last year, which is as bad as last year was. It was terrible. Uh, I think we just kind of quit. No, we did quit in the second half. But we shot 39% compared to Mississippi State shooting 61% from the field in that game. That's just, you might as well, like, honestly, if Mississippi State was playing against air, I'm not sure they could have shot much better than 61% from the field. There's, I, I'm just not sure they could have. So, oh my God, 61%, we shot 39%. It's just terrible. At Kentucky, I know it's a tough place to play. Again, 43% from the field for us, 52% from Kentucky. Against Ole Miss, whew. 30% from the field at home, allowing Ole Miss to shoot 52% from the field. So there's the, com- the lethal combination. We're not shooting the ball well, and we can't stop anybody. It, that, you're not going to win basketball games that way. You're just simply not going to win. And on top of that, we're not rebounding well, and we're not big. I, I knew this was going to be an issue. I mean, we're playing Rayshon Hammonds at 6'9", and Tamani Kamara at 6'9", at the 4-5. and five. Uh, We're minus 32 in rebounds in SEC play. We're 11th in the SEC in rebounds. So if you can't, if you're not shooting well, and you really just can't shoot from three. You can't defend, or you're not defending. I'm not saying we can't, but we're not. Uh, and you're not rebounding because you're you're undersized. Well, um, you're not going to win many basketball games, and that's why we can't get over the hump. That's why we're one in five. And like, and get a little more X and O here. Like, it's fun to watch. Like when things are working, like we're the non-conference, we were you know the top ten in the country in scoring offense. Playing up tempo is fun to watch. But sometimes I feel like we just, we play up tempo just to play up tempo. Like we don't really have any idea what we want to do offensively, other than like just get a shot up quickly. Like oh my god, let's get a shot up really quickly. And what that results in is some really really bad shots. And you get away with that against lesser competition. When you get in conference play, taking a lot of bad shots is not going to work out very well. And then we also we, another another issue we have is we still turn the ball over far too much. Not as much as we did last year, but still far too often. Um, so yeah, just not good. Like, and 
I'll throw this in there too. Look, I don't, I hate coming down on guys. I really do. I'm just trying to be objective here. Tyree Crumb's a good dude. He's played, he's he's done things the right way since he's been here. He's never really gotten in trouble. So I'm not, I don't want to rip this kid. But look, if you're talking about what we need to do to, to maybe try to turn this around a little bit, I, I don't think Tyree Crump needs to play anymore. He, he started most of the year, and I will give Korean some credit. He's taken, he's really cut his minutes down. He's not starting anymore. We finally inserted a severe wheeler in the starting lineup. But Tyree Crump just doesn't need to play anymore. The only value that he could that he really was bringing to the team at all was the threat of a three of him being a three point shooter, shoot from anywhere, shoot from distance, shoot from range, all that kind of stuff. But the guy's shooting twenty eight percent from three right now, and he's just not as good of a three point shooter as everyone has always made him out to be. I think he's never I think he's never shot before. He's never shot above thirty four percent from three in his career. Just never, and he's shooting twenty eight percent right now. Um, Jordan Harris, now that he's back from suspension, is is just far superior in every every regard as a player. It, yes, Jordan Harris, by the way, is leading the team. I think he's like almost 38% from three. He's always been a better three-point shooter, at least percentage-wise, than Tyree Crump, as always has been. He's the best perimeter defender on the team. Uh, he's much more athletic than Tyree Crump is. So when we play Crump, and I know you want to reward the guys. He's a good dude. And he works hard. All, he's a leader. All those kind of things. And I, and I, I hate it for him. I, I even hate saying this. But if we want to win basketball games, he cannot take minutes away from Jordan Harris. Jordan Harris just gives us far more than Tyree Crump does. We need to cut that rotation down even more. And Harris needs to play 20 to 25 minutes a game as opposed to playing 12 to 14 minutes a game and splitting those 20 to 25 minutes with Tyree Crump. He just, yeah, that's just, I know that's a, a small little deal, but this is one thing that's just been bothering me of late. But uh, yeah, so no big deal. We can fix that. Easily, real quick, no problem. Quick turnaround, it's going to happen. Let's do it. Going to the tournament. No, All right, well, no. Taylor asks if Anthony Edwards is overrated. Yeah, I've heard this a lot lately, um, and I get it. I get it. I get it. Because, you know, you think you got a guy who's the potential number one pick in the NBA in the next year's NBA or this year's NBA draft and a guy like that no matter what kind of players around him he should elevate your program and you should be in the conversation for the tournament all that but uh, I mean look Anthony Edwards is he has not been great in conference play his his percentage numbers have gone down uh, shooting percentage numbers have gone down but he still is the second leading scorer in the league at 18.4 points per game and he actually was leading the league in scoring coming into this weekend I think he only had 13 points since Ole Miss didn't play well it was 3 of 10 from 3 again I'm um, not taking like two shots from inside the arc, uh, but so but yeah, he's still the second leading scorer in the league, but he's taking a lot of shots. He's not even top ten in field goal percentage. He's only shooting forty percent from the field right now. I think like thirty-one percent from three. Now part of that is he has there's more tape on him. He's obviously the focus of every single off of every single defense that we play, and uh, it, and it's hard because. We don't like we have maybe one what I would call even like semi consistent offensive threat to, to take any pressure off of him and Rayshon Hammonds and Hammonds when he's on he's he can be a, a great complement to Edwards. And I said at the beginning of the year we need Hammonds to be that consistent complement offensively to, to Edwards or we're going we're to struggle. And he's had moments where he's been that complement, but he also has games where he just doesn't show up. He takes four or five shots from the field, he gets an early foul trouble, committing stupid fouls, and ends up scoring five, six, seven points, and that's just not good enough. We need more from him because we just don't have any other players outside of those two that are going to consistently score for us. We just don't have them. We just don't have them right now. Um, but I also don't think that we are putting Edwards in a – I don't think we're consistently putting him in good situations offensively. I don't think we run enough offense for him. I think we do a little too much iso ball, uh, which is what's in the NBA, but it's not working for us right now. I would love to see him in more of a playmaking role. I'd put him in some pick-and-roll situations. a little bit. I'm not saying we don't ever do that, but not as consistently as I would like. I, I think we need to do that more often. Uh, because he can play off those screens and uh, really and just be kind of a playmaker for offense. I think when he was really rolling, when he had thirty plus points against Michigan State, uh, against Chaminade as well, you know, uh, some of his bigger games, he's also been a playmaker. He's creating for his his teammates, getting everybody involved. And when you do that, then all of a sudden teams have to account for the other players on the team. And now you got some more one on one opportunities, some better looks. And I, I think one of the things that he does, I mean, look, and this is not just me saying this. Everyone says this is it's true. He does not put the ball on the floor and take it to the rim near enough. He's He's so big and so athletic that it's so hard to stop him if he would just do that a little bit more consistently. Now, part of the problem is we don't, going back to the shooting, we don't have enough three-point shooters right now, so the lanes are clogged. And so it's hard for him, a guy like Severe Wheeler, who can get into the, who is really good at getting into the lane, it's hard for them to find room. It's hard for them to finish at the rim when they get into the lane because there's so many bodies there. Because n- no one is sticking on our three-point shooters when we have a guy that penetrates and drives through the lane, try, trying to take it to the rim. They will crash off of our three-point shooters. There's the three-point line. They'll even leave the guys from the baseline and and crash on the uh, on the on the the driver because they have no respect for anyone knocking a three down because we're not making them respect it. So I think all those things make it a little bit tough on Edwards, but he does need to learn to take better shots. I think sometimes 
He just he takes these ridiculous contested threes. It's like in the NBA, the, the, the cliche is now like there's no such thing as a bad shot in the NBA. You just you go up there and you just take shots, and like those guys just like they make bad like Steph Curry and James Harden. They make bad what, what used to be considered bad shots. They make them look routine. And I think Edwards is trying to show scouts that he can do those things, but he's not hitting those shots consistently. Now when he gets an open look and he has to square his body, when he's not falling away, he's not fading backwards then uh, he knocks those shots down. But he's just taking ridiculously bad shots where he's got a hand in his face. Uh, he's trying to rise up over them. Um, he's not taking... We just need more ball movement. Like, we were doing a good job early in the year of, of cutting and getting to the rim. But teams have scouted us out and they're trying to take away that. And uh, again, without the three-point shooters, it's harder to... Uh, to make teams uh, pay for that, so I don't know. I don't. I don't think Anthony Edwards is overrated. I think from a physical standpoint, he is crazy gifted. I mean, that body and his athleticism. He's got a great looking stroke when again when he squares up and he takes good shots, but with no one to support him and or con- consistently support him as a as a second scorer, that's making things really tough on him. He's taking bad shots. I, there's some things he needs to add to his offense game. I would like to see him add a little floater to his game, things like that little runner. Um, but uh, I still think he's going to be a high in the NBA draft. I think he's going to be a really good player in the NBA for a long time. He's just got some freakish skill set. But uh, he does need to polish his game. we got to remember, he's only 18 years old, uh, playing at this level the first time, tape like this, and coaches like this, and and opposing athletes, it's tougher. But no, I don't think he's over. I think he's going to be a really good player. It's just tough when he's working with what he has to work with here on our team. Okay, to wrap this up, William wants to know if the Georgia basketball season is already over, only one-third of the way into conference play. I'd really like to say no because the offseason, football offseason, is a lot more fun when basketball is going, right? But I don't know, man. Like I said, like – I don't know if you're going to change our three-point shooting overnight. I, don't, I, don't, I think you'd get better players. Than you. I mean, Tom Green has got to go. He's got to go recruit shooters. He's got to go recruit shooters. We got to get those guys in this program because you look at the best teams out there. They have guys that can shoot the basketball, and we just don't have enough of them right now. We really any of them. I mean, Edwards is shooting 31, percent and I mean, he's supposed to be our best player, best shooter. So I don't know. I don't think you fix that overnight. Defensively, we can get better because we have good athletes. They're just a lot of it is youth and experience, but like, come on, we're like you said, Charlie. We're already through non-conference play. We're a third of the way through conference play. Like, you got to get with like the, the miscommunications, the lack of communication, leaving guys wide open. Uh, they're not fighting for rebounds. Like those things can be fixed, but like times right now, we got to start fixing these things. So I don't know if I have any comments that we're gonna fix them if we haven't to this point. Those things are more fixable than the shooting. I don't think we're gonna fix that. I do think we can do some more things schematically, offensively. Uh, run some more pick and rolls, put Edwards, put the ball in his hands and play making roll a bit more consistently, cut down on Tyree Crump's minutes. I just don't play him, those kind of things. Um, but I don't know if that's going to do enough at this point, starting one and five in conference to get us back in the tournament conversation, which we were after that win against Memphis. We were right there. I think we were like the, the next four out or something like that. Well, again, at least on the bubble, which is what I thought we could be. I will say, if you look at our schedule coming up, we had a brutal start. I told you guys, we're probably going to start one and four to open conference play. And we did. Now, I didn't think we'd lose to Ole Miss, who was 0-5 in conference at home over the weekend. That is unacceptable. That is what has me down right now. 1-4 to open. We got Kentucky twice at Auburn. At Mississippi State, it's a good team. Uh, Tennessee, like that's understandable. Losing to an 0-5, an Ole Miss team that's 0-5 in conference at home, unacceptable. That cannot happen. We we had to win those kind of games. But still, if you look at our schedule the rest of the way, next couple weeks, we got at Missouri, very winnable game. We're we're more talented. That's a game that we can win. I'm not saying we're more talented. We can win that game. AM is maybe the only team right now that's worse than us in the league. We've got them at home. We can win that game at Florida. Probably not going to win that game, although they're not as good as everyone thought they were going to be. Alabama at home is they're better than us right now, but that still could be winnable at home. South Carolina at home, winnable at AM, winnable. Auburn at home, it would take a miracle, but crazy things happen at home. At Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt's very, very bad. They lost their best uh, their best score. That's a winnable game. At South Carolina. Probably a loss, but who knows? So there are some winnable games down the stretch. Like the schedule does lighten up in conference. We start out just so rough, but man, I don't know. Are we gonna like to have a chance to even be in the conversation for the tournament? We're gonna have to get to five hundred in conference play. And we're one and five right now, so that means we're gonna have to go what eight and three or eight and four down the stretch, possible. But gonna be tough. Gonna be tough. But we'll see. I'll still watch and. Maybe we'll have some good basketball conversation to talk about in the next couple weeks. But uh, all right, guys, that does it for us today on the Glory UJ podcast. Really appreciate you sticking it out with us. We'll have you guys covered later in the week and have a fun show for you guys. We're finally going to be able to get to our 2019 uh, end of the season award show. We wanted this a couple weeks ago, but all the news that was saying we had to cover that stuff as well. 
but we're going to have our award show, and we're going to get you guys involved. Now, we'll put some stuff out on Twitter, and that's at Glory underscore UJ. You guys are going to vote. I have a vote. Charlie's going to have a vote. Curtis is going to have a vote, and you guys will have a vote as well on all of our different categories. So be checking those out, looking for that stuff on Twitter, and uh, we'd love to get your input on that. But uh, thanks for listening. For Charlie, I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs. <laughs>